Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Items that the church had gathered claiming that they came from the Bible. So, for instance, there was a, a piece of the of uh, the burning bush, it was claimed. There was uh, a thorn that had come out of Jesus' crown, and the church would gather up these relics, and people would devote themselves and virtually worship these relics. And any kind of assurance that a person could be accepted by God was lost. But into that spiritual darkness, the gospel broke through. What God did in his mercy is he raised up certain individuals, people like William Tyndale, Ulrich Zwingli, John Calvin, and of course Martin Luther. God raised up these individuals to, um, to confront what was happening in the Catholic Church at that time so that the pure essence of the grace of the gospel could be recaptured. And it was Luther himself who really lit the fuse for the Reformation because Luther was the guy who got his 95 theses, his kind of arguments or protests against the teaching and conduct of the Catholic Church, and he nailed those to a door in a church in Germany. And that event is credited as the beginning of the Reformation. And that happened on October 31st, 1517. Well, here we are in October... 2017, 500 years later, and so this year we are celebrating the 500th anniversary of this extraordinary event. Now, I don't think any of us can really understand fully how significant the Reformation was. Um, One church historian said, apart from the introduction of the Church of Jesus Christ, the Reformation is the most significant event in human history. Now, we might argue about that, but there's a plausible case to be made for that. Another church historian said there's no way that we can understand ourselves as modern people unless we understand the Reformation. The Reformation absolutely changed the world. Some writers call Martin Luther God's volcano. Luther was shock therapy to the church and to the world at the time, and the world has never been the same even 500 years after. So what happened as a result of the Reformation is that there was a split that is from the Catholic Church and so you have to know that at the time the Catholic Church was the only game in town when it came to church. People didn't have the opportunity to go down the street to the Baptist Church or the Presbyterian Church at the time. They didn't exist. There was one church and it was the only place to go and that's why it's so significant that the Catholic Church at the time was distorting the gospel the way it was. The reformers wanted to reform the church. That's what we call them, the reformers. They never intended to break off from the church, but that's what happened. And so what is called the Protestant church came out of the Reformation. And so you can see the root of the word Protestant is protest. And that's what the reformers were about, protesting what was going on in the Catholic church at the time. So the Protestant church got its start at the Reformation. So I, I don't know, you know how, <coughs> excuse me, how you necessarily identify yourself in terms of, um, of your outlook. Uh, you might consider yourself Presbyterian. Hopefully a lot of you do, being here at a Presbyterian church, but maybe you were brought up Methodist or, or Baptist um, or Lutheran. 
whatever denomination or tradition you happen to cling to, aside from the Catholic Church, if that's what you hold to, you owe your theological heritage to the Reformation. Whether you're Presbyterian or Amish, whether you're non-denominational, some of you think, you know, I don't like denominations, I'm a non-denominational guy, I don't want to be part of a church connected to a denomination, but if that non-denominational church is an evangelical church, you are a child of the Reformation. We are children, descendants of the Reformation here as Presbyterians. So, the question that is being asked today, 500 years later, is this. Is the Reformation over? It's been 500 years now. Now, thankfully, the wars and bloodshed and battles that were taken up as a result of the Reformation, and there was a lot of ugly stuff that happened, in the decades following the Reformation, a very dark period in a lot of ways. That's over. Thank the Lord that the violence and the bloodshed is over. But what about the theological differences? What about those issues that the Reformers and the Catholic Church were disputing at the time? Have we gotten past those? Do Catholics and Protestants basically agree on the gospel and major theological points. Now, to be sure, Protestants and Catholics agree on a lot of important doctrinal points. We agree about the Trinity, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God and three persons. We agree about the person of Jesus Christ, that he is 100% man, 100% God, together at the same time, born into this world in a manger, went to a cross, died, shed his blood to atone for sins, and is resurrected from the dead. We share that, Protestants and Catholics. We share a lot of beliefs about the attributes of God. God is holy, he's righteous, he's omnipresent, he knows all things, he's in all places. We agree. We agree on a lot of social issues when it comes to LGBT issues and abortion issues. We have a lot in common with the Catholic Church. But here's the deal. None of those issues was ever disputed between these two groups. These issues were not at stake during the Reformation. The issues at stake during the Reformation were very different. The issues at stake during the Reformation were questions like this. How can you be justified before a holy God? How can you know that God loves you and that the day is coming when you will go to heaven? Is there any way to know that? Who can stand between you and a holy God and act as an intercessor or mediator so that you can know that your sins are forgiven and that you have an advocate before the Father? Can anybody do that? And if so, who is it? Those were the questions that were so central to the disputes between Catholics and the Reformers at the time. And if we look at those issues in particular, I think the answer to this question is no. The Reformation is not over. We still have significant differences between Catholics and Protestants. Now, I don't want this sermon or this sermon series to be a Catholic bashing service. Some of you have a background in, in the Catholic Church. Some of you might even identify with the Catholic Church today. Uh, we consider the Catholic Church friends of ours. Um, sometimes people ask, can Catholics be saved? I mean, my response to that is, well, can a Protestant be saved? 
Well, yeah, certainly there are Protestants and Catholics that can be saved when people trust Jesus for salvation. And there are people in the Protestant church and the Catholic church both who misunderstand the gospel and are not saved. But there's still these significant theological differences that they haven't gone away, friends. And it doesn't do us any good to sweep them under the rug and act like they're not there. It doesn't mean we have to be enemies. But let's not act like they're not there. That's what this sermon series is going to be about. Just talking about these different slogans from the Reformation. So here's what came out of the Reformation. These five slogans, theological slogans. These are what the Reformers said. Salvation is by grace alone, on the basis of the work of Christ alone, received by faith alone. It's all to the glory of God alone. And we learn about it in Scripture alone. And so this sermon series for the next five Sundays is going to take one of these each Sunday uh, to explore uh, what the reformers said, what the differences are, and most importantly, what the scripture says about these issues. And so um, today we're beginning with scripture alone because this is the foundational battle cry of the Reformation. And uh, 2 Timothy 3 provides us a text that captures this doctrine of scripture alone or sola scriptura, that's the Latin phrasing that the reformers would have used, uh, that we're going to be talking about today. So please stand now for the reading of God's word, 2 Timothy <coughs> 3, starting with verse 14. And I'll read to chapter 4, verse 2. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. By the way, this is Paul writing, and he's writing to Timothy. Uh, Paul's kind of a mentor to Timothy. Timothy is a pastor, and so this is Paul speaking to Timothy. Knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Father, open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so as we think of this issue of the, the role of Scripture, the view of Scripture, we're going to consider this from three angles, the authority of Scripture, the extent of Scripture, and how we understand Scripture. So first of all, the authority of Scripture. In, in other words, the question here is this. Who has final authority to speak on God's behalf? Who gets the final word in teaching what the gospel is and how a Christian should live? This was a big issue during the time of the Reformation. Now, if we look at verse 16 here of chapter 3, you'll see this very important foundational verse for our doctrine of Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God. That is, all scripture is inspired 
by God. That doesn't mean all scripture is inspirational, although that might be true. We find the Bible inspirational. The point is, all scripture is inspired. All scripture finds its origin in God, who breathed out words through the writers of the scripture so that what they wrote was what God wanted them to write, so that when we look at the Bible, we have the very words of God before us. That's what this verse means. Now, Catholics look at that verse, and they agree with that. Protestants and Catholics are together on this view of the inspiration of Scripture. Now, inerrancy of Scripture, well, not all Protestants even hold that view, and not all Catholics do either. But certainly we all agree in the inspiration of Scripture. But here's where there is some division, because according to the Catholic Church, the tradition of the Church has equal authority as Scripture. That is the teaching of the bishops, the declarations of the Pope. In the mind of the typical Catholic, those teachings possess the same authority in their Christian lives as Scripture. So, for instance, if we look at a doctrine like this, the Immaculate Conception of Mary. This is a a Catholic doctrine that teaches that Mary was born without sin. Original sin did not infect her, and so she was not born into this world as a sinner. Now, that's a pretty significant thing to say about a person, isn't it? A pretty significant thing to say about Mary. But friends, that doctrine is not found in the Bible. Mary calls Jesus her Savior. Mary knew she needed a Savior. And what makes you needful of a Savior is that you're a sinner, The Bible does not teach that Mary was sinless, but the tradition of the Catholic Church has determined this thing called the Immaculate Conception of Mary. And this actually wasn't made official teaching of the Catholic Church until Pope Pius IX made it so in 1854. So pretty late in church history, but since then, this is considered a doctrine of the church equal in authority to what one would find in Scripture. Protestants or the Reformers, we have a different view. We affirm the inspiration of Scripture. We affirm the value of tradition. So we just read a catechism question here a moment ago. We love the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Heidelberg Catechism and the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. We value tradition in this church and think it's very important because those traditions help us understand the Bible. But the difference is that we always place those traditions, those creeds, those confessions subordinate to, underneath the authority of Scripture. And the reason we can say that is because the Scriptures are themselves sufficient for all that we need as Christians. So what we would say is that in Scripture, based on our passage here, there is everything necessary for salvation. Look at verse 15. Paul here talking to Timothy. Paul is kind of reminding Timothy about his upbringing, about what he has learned and firmly believed, verse 14, and knowing from whom you've learned it, verse 15, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, that scripture, which are able to do what? To make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 
Through the scriptures, we have all that we need to know about who Jesus is, how he entered the world, how he lived his life, what he did on the cross, and what are the significance of his resurrection from the dead, so that we can know that our response to that should be to place faith in him. And those who place faith in that Savior have assurance that they have eternal life, their sins are forgiven, and that they are saved. And all of that is found in the sacred writings, according to this passage. We don't need church tradition to give us that message when we have a sufficient amount of direction about that in the Bible. But not only that, in Scripture there is everything necessary for a godly life. Let's go on. Look at verses 16 and 17. All Scripture breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness... Now look at this verse, 17. So that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. Every good work. Not some good works, not most good works, not a certain number of good works, but now we need tradition to help us with other good works. No. In the scripture is everything we need to be equipped for every good work required of the Christian. And so that's why we say scripture alone is our authority. We still value tradition, but scripture has the last say, the final say. So here's how I'm going to define this. Scripture alone, or sola scriptura. Again, that's the Latin phrase. Scripture alone is the ultimate and final authority for all matters of Christian faith and practice. That's what we mean by that doctrine. And so... To be as simple as possible, the Catholic view, tradition and scripture, have authority in our lives, equal authority, equal authority. The Reformers' view is that scripture is always over tradition. That sums up a difference, and that's still the difference between the two. Um, Very early in Martin Luther's ministry, in the year 1519, so this would have been two years after he nailed his theses on the door of the church, he was invited to engage in a debate with a guy named Johann Eck, E-C-K, Eck was his name. He was a theologian, Catholic theologian, and the two of them had this public debate, and they went at it over this issue in particular, and Eck's position was that Scripture's authority actually derived from the Pope. And so Luther was scandalized by that, and what Luther realized as he was engaged in this debate is that if that were the case, then the Pope could never be corrected or reformed by the Scriptures because he was setting himself up as equal and maybe even over Scripture in terms of his own authority. Luther realized that if the Pope's word could trump God's word, there would be no way to call the church back into fellowship with God or to repent of any of their sins. And I mentioned that the church was a mess at the time. But there's no way to get out of that mess if the pope or the church or tradition was seeing itself as the final authority. And so Luther said, no, that's wrong. Scripture alone is our authority. And as a result of that, he was branded a heretic. Scripture alone was considered at that time a heretical view, a view that most of us take for granted, and yet at that time called heresy. Well, after the Reformation, Catholic theologians got together and they composed or they they met 
uh, in something that's called the Council of Trent. And that was like 1545, 15 to six, 1563. They met for a long time. And what they did is they worked out a response to what the reformers had been saying. And at the Council of Trent, the very first thing they sought to oppose was sola scriptura, scripture alone. That was the first thing that they wanted to be very clear. We reject that. Now, of course, that was 16th century. But let me show you something. This is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, 1992. So this captures the doctrine of the church, and it says this. The Catholic Church does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from Holy Scripture alone. Both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. So that's why I say, friends, the Reformation is not over. As Protestants, we can't accept this. We can love our Catholic brothers and sisters. We can respect what they have to teach us, but we can't accept that if we believe what 2 Timothy 3 is teaching as we hold to this doctrine of Scripture alone. Well, how about the extent of Scripture? Let's think about this. The extent of Scripture, that is what makes up Scripture. Verse 15, Paul talks again about these sacred writings how from childhood, Timothy, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Now, it's a little bit of an odd phrase for Paul to, to use. Uh, we don't really know why he used that phrase, but certainly the word sacred would seem to be setting this apart from secular writings. And the context of the passage certainly is Scripture, as we see him in verse 16, making mention of Scripture being breathed out by God. So I think it's pretty clear that by sacred writings, Paul means Scripture. But that begs a question, which is this. What qualifies as a sacred writing? What books did Paul have in mind when he was referring to the sacred writings here? Because Paul is writing here before the New Testament is finished, of course. So what he's referring to is the Old Testament. And as Protestants, we believe that there are 39 books of the Old Testament. And our Catholic friends would agree with that. We're together on that. 39 books. But the Catholic view is to add to that a certain collection of books known as the Apocrypha. And in the Apocrypha, we have these books, Wisdom of Solomon, that's not the Proverbs. Well, the Proverbs are written largely by Solomon and their wisdom books. This is a different book. Ecclesiasticus, not the same as Ecclesiastes. That's in our Old Testament. Different book. Judith, Tobit, and First and Second Maccabees. These are the books that make up the Apocrypha. Now, the Reformers rejected these books as being legitimately part of the Bible. The reformers did not believe that those books were breathed out by God, as verse 16 says. That they might be valuable in, in many ways. They might give us some information about what was happening at this point in time. By the way, these books were written between the Old Testament and New Testament. They were Jewish writings. Certainly, there's much we can learn from them. But the reformers denied that they were inspired, that they were God-breathed. No, they said. And therefore, they should not be part of our Bibles. So you might say, well, why? On what basis did they make that determination? Well, a couple of reasons. One, 
the New Testament very often refers to the books of the Old Testament. In fact, there's more than 300 allusions in the New Testament to books in the Old Testament. And every book in the Old Testament, I think except Esther, is referred to in the New Testament. And when the New Testament refers to these Old Testament books, very often, maybe even all the time, it's prefaced by this phrase, something like, as it is written, or thus saith the Lord. And then the Old Testament book will be quoted. And that's the New Testament's way of saying these books in the Old Testament are authoritative, that these are God's word, thus saith the Lord. And then they quote the Old Testament book as if the Old Testament book was the word of God. But when you consider these apocryphal books, they're never referred to that way in the New Testament. Never does an apocryphal book get prefaced by, as it is written, or thus saith the Lord. And the reason why is because the apocryphal books are not even mentioned in the New Testament. They're not even referenced. There's a book called First Enoch, which is referenced in the New Testament, but that's not in the Apocrypha. The apocryphal books are not mentioned. We also find that the apocryphal books were not officially made part of the Catholic Bible until the Council of Trent, 16th century, more than 1,500 years after they were written. Many of the church fathers, Jerome, Origen, Athanasius, rejected the Apocrypha as being part of the Bible. But maybe most significantly is that in the Apocrypha, in some of these books, there is some very obvious false teaching. For instance, the doctrine of purgatory. Maybe you've heard of that. Uh, a, A doctrine that Catholics believe and hold to finds its support not in the Old Testament or the New Testament, but in the Apocrypha, in a book called 2 Maccabees, chapter 12. And purgatory is this idea that when people who die as friends of God, and I I use that phrase because that's the catechism way to describe it, when people die as friends of God, if they have unconfessed sin or if they haven't achieved a certain amount of holiness in their life, they have, to <coughs> they have to go to a place called purgatory for a time before they can enter into heaven. So purgatory is kind of this intermediate place where believers have to go to be chastened to get their remaining sin and corruption kind of Uh, eliminated so that they can then be fit to enter into heaven. That's purgatory. And, And, you know, my understanding is that that's where most people eventually go. And it's a place that seems a little more like hell than heaven. You're chastened and you're, you're being cleaned up so that you can get into heaven. But friends, the gospel makes purgatory completely unnecessary. A right understanding of the gospel tells us that when we trust in Jesus, we're made righteous in God's sight. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, credited to us, so that we are righteous. God looks at us, we're not righteous practically, but because of the way God has devised the gospel, that righteousness that Jesus has accomplished belongs to us. What does it say in 1 John? Confess your sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all 
unrighteousness. How about Hebrews 10? When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Sat down, that means he finished the job. Our salvation is done. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We've been perfected in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, not practically, we still sin in our daily lives, but in terms of how God looks at us and views us, we're righteous. That's, that's what we're saying every Sunday here. That's the glory of the gospel, being righteous before God through faith alone. And if that's the case, why would we need to be cleaned up in purgatory? It, it's unnecessary. And yet, here's the Council of Trent, 16th century, about the Apocrypha. If anyone does not receive as sacred and canonical these books, referring to the Apocrypha, and all their parts, and knowingly and deliberately rejects the above-mentioned traditions, let him be anathema. Anathema means cursed. That's a strong statement about those who would not accept the Apocrypha that teach things like purgatory. So this is why I'm saying the Reformation is not over. Because the Apocrypha is still a part of the Catholic Bible. Last thing, understanding Scripture. Before the Reformation, I mean, there are just so many things about the Reformation when you read it, you just can hardly believe it. It just is so outside of what we normally expect in this day and age. Do you know that before the Reformation, no one owned a Bible? And most of you probably bought Bibles to church today. We've got Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Before the Reformation, those didn't exist. Why? Because there wasn't a Bible in the language of the people. The Bible was in Latin, and that was it. If you didn't speak Latin, you're totally dependent on the Pope or the priest to tell you what it means, because you can't read it. You don't go down to the bookstore and buy a Bible. They're not available. That's why when the printing press was invented, it was such a monumental invention, every bit as significant as the Internet today. Because in the printing press, Bibles could then be printed. Martin Luther gets to work. He translates the Bible into German. He was a German man for his German countrymen. William Tyndale in England, he translates the Bible into English. And people start getting this English Bible and reading it for themselves. And some of them got killed for it. It was considered a dangerous and subversive thing to have your own Bible before the Reformation. And the reason why is because, according to the church at the time, if people can read the Bible and, and, and interpret it any way they want, well, who knows what they'll make of it. There, there's no way they can really understand the Bible. That was the view. So we'll just have the, the Pope and the church interpret the Bible and tell the people what to believe about it. That, that, was, that was the way it worked. But here's the Reformer's view. The Reformer's view is this. The, the way to understand the Bible is to sit under the Bible as it's preached. Do you know what the center of the sanctuary at the time of the Reformation was the altar for the Mass? But one of the things the Reformers did is they scooted that aside and put the pulpit in the center place in the sanctuary. And virtually all Protestant churches, you'll find, there's a pulpit, and it's right here in the middle as a way of declaring that this is the central way we come to understand the scriptures. And we see that here in chapter 4. Look what Paul says. 
I charge you, Timothy. He's, I mean, this is serious language. I'm giving you an exhortation in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. There's just this, there's this solemnity about this charge. Timothy, as you go about your duties as pastor, and as you get ready to give an account of yourself to Christ Jesus, who is your judge, here's what I want to tell you to do, Timothy. Here's what I want you to devote yourself to. Here's what I want you to concentrate on, verse 2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Preach the word. Teach the word. That phrase, in season and out of season, that, that means um, when it's popular to preach the world, word and when it's not popular. When it's convenient to preach the word and when it's not convenient. When your church grows when you preach the word and when your church shrinks when you preach the word. When you get applauded for preaching the word and when you get put in jail for preaching the word. Doesn't matter. Preach it. In season and out of season. All the time. That's how people will come to understand the scriptures. That's the reformer's view, and I believe that's the scripture's view. Of course, there's also private reading of the Bible. Uh, there are other ways to understand the scripture, but the primary way here, according to the reformers, was through preaching. Um, Zwingli, he was the reformer in, um, <clears throat> in Switzerland. Uh, at, at that time, people would give homilies and uh, kind of short little messages about the Bible based on the church calendar. Zwingli shocked his people one Sunday when he got into the pulpit and he began with Matthew 1 verse 1 and indicated that he was going to preach through the entire New Testament. He was going to throw out the church calendar and he took six years to preach through the New Testament. Now this is something we see very common, people preaching through books of the Bible. That was something that came out of the Reformation. John Calvin, who was in Geneva, um, pastoring, teaching, he got dismissed from his position, um, got fired, and so he left Geneva. He went to another city, and then the people realized they made a big mistake by throwing out, you know, maybe the greatest theologian in, in the history of, of the church. We just fired him. Uh, maybe we should bring him back. And so they invite, 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 three and a half years. Calvin accepts. He comes back. He gets back into his pulpit, and here's the people sitting, <laughs> sitting before him. And they're thinking, oh man, Calvin's going to let us have it. <laughs> you know, he's really going to lecture us and chastise us for, for getting rid of him. And Calvin gets up there and he locates the place in the Bible where he left off three and a half years ago and just starts preaching again. Just picked up where he left, didn't say a thing about it. And that was his way of saying, here's what I'm here to do. Preach the word to you. And that's what chapter 4 is telling us. So it would be easy for us, I think, after all of this to kind of go away and think, you know, yeah, isn't this great? We've got this down. We Protestants, we understand sola scriptura. Those Catholics, they don't. That's not what I want you to, to go away thinking. I think a good question for us to ask is, how do we undermine the doctrine of Scripture alone. Because we do it. There are ways this happens. Anytime, friend, that you find yourself just not reading the Bible, you're just private Bible reading is just kind of 
not part of your life, that's an undermining of sola scriptura. You're looking to something else to encourage you and bless you and grow you in your faith. Something besides the Bible. Anytime that you long to hear God speak in an audible voice or through a dream or something, and you think that if, if God would just do that, then, then I could really know what God believes and what God wants for me. Somehow thinking that a, an audible voice from God would somehow be more authoritative or more clear to you than the scripture. That's, that's undermining sola scriptura. Anytime we look to our heart or our feelings as a way of validating decisions that we make apart from any reference to the Bible, we say, this is, you know, I just got to be true to myself or this is what my heart led me to do and we act like that has some kind of an authority. That's undermining sola scriptura. Anytime we, we, we look to something else apart from Scripture to grow the church and bring people to faith, where we think something like, oh, if we can only get the right person in office, if we can only deal with this social justice issue and correct this thing, if only we can fix all the problems out in the world, if only we could get a celebrity to come in and say he believes in Jesus. Those are all ways of undermining sola scriptura. We're thinking there's something else besides the Bible that God's going to use to build his church. There isn't anything. He does it through the word. Anytime that we begin as a church to rely on marketing techniques or entertainment to be the primary activity that goes on in a worship service, thinking that if we can just make people laugh and giggle and entertain them, then that's the way to grow the church. We'll just put the word aside. That's what the church down the street did, and they're huge, so it must be right. That's undermining sola scriptura. Best example of this, I think, as I close, Andrew Brown referred to this in his sermon on Mark 1 a little while ago. Jesus, remember Mark 1, Jesus is healing all these people, performing all these miracles, and his disciples come to him, and they say, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. You're, you're performing all these miracles. I'm just imagining the disciples are thinking, man, this is it. This is the key to the growth of the church. Healings, miracles. Jesus, if you just perform more miracles, the church will grow. Everybody's looking for you, Jesus. Go, do more of those things. And you know what Jesus says in Mark 1 to that request? No, I came here to preach the word. That's why I came. And that's what he did. Now, Jesus healed a lot of people, of course, and that was a valuable thing. But in that particular instance, what Jesus was communicating is that what I came here to do is preach the word so that people could hear the gospel. He came to die, of course, eventually, to go and offer himself as a sacrifice for you and me, which we'll uh, reflect upon as we come to the table here in a moment. But Jesus was affirming the centrality of the word. In that moment, because Jesus knows and we know too that the word of God is like a hammer that breaks rock into pieces. And it's through the word that faith comes. It's through the word that we are sanctified. And it's the word in the flesh that one day we will face, face to face, when we get to glory. And what a joyful thing that'll be. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for revealing yourself to us, for speaking to us. 
Uh, Lord God in heaven, please make us people of your word in Jesus' name. Amen.